You are listening to Citizen Reporter number 440 for the 7th of January, 2013, part of the Arab Artists in a Revolution series. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new year of podcasting and conversations and adventures here on Citizen Reporter. I'm your host, Mark Fonseca Rendeiro, also known by some as Bicycle Mark. And for those of you who have been following over the last two months, this program is part of the Arab Artists in a Revolution series, the series you all helped fund to get me to Tunisia, Egypt, and when this program was recorded, I was in Lebanon, and the goal was to speak with artists about life, work, and the changes in their country and in the region. So let's start modestly at least. Okay. Good afternoon, everyone. We're starting modestly here in in Beirut, in Lebanon. Um, This is part of the Arab Artists in a Revolution series, although we're in Lebanon, so the title itself might might not apply. Maybe it does. We'll find out. Um, So I'm sitting here with Kamal Hakim. Uh, Good afternoon, Kamal. Hello. Kamal is is dressed for for Lebanese winter, which means he has a blazer on. And uh, sitting here in a in a park, which there are not that many that I've seen. That's the one and only park, actually. <laughs> oh. oh, well, I'm pleased to be sitting in a park after three weeks in Cairo, where parks are, well, you have to pay money to go in. And, um, and one of the things I wanted to do is um, first to learn a little bit about you. Um, you being presented to my audience as something of an artist and a thinker and an all-around nice guy. But I don't know you that well, so we can put that to the test. <laughs> Let's start with you yourself. You're an, you're an illustrator. You're a... illustrator who studied political sciences in the American University of Beirut and then who went to Canada. You're She's, Lebanese. I'm Lebanese, mm. fully Lebanese. Uh, grew up during the war, so Lebanon is my country. Uh, and I've witnessed, if you want, the adolescence of the country in a way, because the reconstruction was there while I was growing up, so it was always interesting to watch this country growing up as you are growing up also, and this has influenced me a lot in uh, whatever I like to do, there's always this uh, aspect. It's a bit dark, because also it's a a very young country, Mm -hmm. and... uh, tend to relate the country to myself because I'm also full of contradiction myself because I uh, I come from a mixed uh, marriage so uh, I truly believe that I embody in a way the the country's contradictions within myself so I do feel that if you could and if you would explain the mixed marriage thing uh, mother from a Greek Orthodox background father from a Sunni uh, Muslim background uh, civil wedding in Cyprus and uh, growing up in the west uh, side of Beirut during wartime Beirut. And uh, that's basically the background. Uh, and a Protestant grandmother with whom we used to celebrate uh, uh, Christmas and we used to have for dinner sauerkraut, which is uh, quite interesting. So having all these funny elements also, the sauerkraut, for example, in the Middle Eastern country added to the whole... Uh, uh, if you want, ironical uh, side of me bro- bring, uh, being brought up in this country. 
so contradictions, war zone, at the same time we'd have amazing uh, times uh, through the food, through the reunions, and dramatic also. Would you say that your story is unique or quite typical of this country? Quite typical, quite yeah. typical. We all have the same contradictions. Like I'm sure there are a lot of couples that are, and young people that are from mixed med- weddings and stuff like that. So, you grew up. I find that interesting. And, and during the the rebuilding of this country, um, you know, I look around and it seems like a lot of decisions were made for rebuilding. Some good, some bad. But here we are in a in a city that's that feels quite rebuilt. I mean, everywhere I look, new. Some roads look new. Some buildings look new. The ones that look old seem like they're about to be knocked down, uh, replaced by something else. Go into this whole how it influenced you growing up. I mean, is that does that have anything to do with with why you went into uh, illustration and arts? Uh, I'm sure. Maybe not. But no, no. I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm sure. Like, uh, first of all, I always loved reading comic strips instead of reading novels. I think it was always hard for us to read. Uh, our generation was too ADD to really take the time to read. So we used to, my, I think my parents decided to bring us uh, all these comic strips. And this is how we started reading. And through the imagery uh, and, uh, and uh, the humor of the comics, you know, you, you, I tended to relate to what was happening also at the same time during the rebuilding of the country. And we were surrounded with funny stories in a way, like funny stories during dramatic times. And this is what I try to also represent to my art. There's always an ironic, gloomy side to my drawings. It's always a bit dark. And this is what I, what I, what I see in general. When you started out, you, you went to school for this? Yeah. I went to Canada, mm-hmm. studied uh, cartoons, animation in Sheridan College mm-hmm. in uh, Oakville, which is a very close city uh, uh, for retired couples from Toronto. Mm-hmm. So it was a bit monastic to live there, and we only had one pub, I remember. And that was it. Mm-hmm. The rest was... Uh, but you make the decision to, to come back to Lebanon. Because all the inspiration comes from here. I thought that Canada was quite a boring country regarding the stories. And Lebanon is quite exciting and everything is happening in the region right now. So why be uh, away from that Hmm. and everything's happening? It seems like a lot of people in this country in in our age group, um, despite going abroad for work or for schooling, it's almost logical for them or logical decision that they would come back I'm pleased to hear that. It's usually uh, some sort of a brain drain, and they stay away because of the better quality life. But I think because of the big economical crisis, uh, the immigration process is not as it used to be. It's a bit harder today, and also with the, the I don't know if it's a failed system, the the, the, the failed image of pluralistic societies. You know, the, this whole multicultural dream. That is in a way failing in the in the West. Mm. That's why I think there's a lot of Arabs coming back to their homelands. But isn't there isn't there a multicultural dream right here in Lebanon? Well, it's uh, I don't know if it's a historical reality indigenous to our culture, or I think it's a failed construct also by itself. Mm-hmm. Like so, you have you have you have some 
some political views that address this contradiction and say that we should adopt some sort of a federal system in this country in order to organize the, these differences. And some of us in the West, mainly west side of Beirut, lived in, this, in these uh, differences quite well. I have to make you explain this division because I myself am still learning it. There is a line, or there was a line. There was a line, the green line, between the West and the East. The East was mainly a monochromatic uh, Christian uh, region, whereas the West was more pluricultural in a way. You grew up in the West. And I grew up in the West. I went to a French school in the West, then went to the American University in the West. And uh, the West was also the place where the Islamo-progressist uh, side was. So you had the pro-Palestinian, the pro-resistant side of the country, whereas the East was more Christian bourgeois in a way. And conservative. And conservative in a certain way, but also liberal. Because, because it, uh, contradictions in this country again and again mm. are astonishing. Because at the same time you could be in the West surrounded with all these uh, uh, pro-resistance, for example, uh, side, but at the same time they'd be super conservative in regards to certain uh, moral codes. And in the East, would be very loose regarding certain codes and be liberal in certain ways, but also be very conservative somewhere else, mm -hmm. refusing uh, uh, marriages between different sects and uh, talking about the purity of the race, whereas in the West, there's no sense of purity whatsoever. <laughs> there's a sense of, you know, harmonious chaos. Out of curiosity, what is the state of that, that line, that division nowadays? Does it still exist? No, it doesn't exist really because 20 years after, after the war, uh, the, the barricades have fallen in a way and uh, we go and have a drink either in Hamra or in Jamaize, uh, in both sides of the city. So the tension definitely have been removed, but they've, they've, they've been turned somewhere else. Like today, we wouldn't talk about, if you want, the Christian-Muslim divide or tension only. We talk about more the Sunni-Shia uh, tension. And this is what is being fed, in a way, between the Saudis and uh, big geopolitical forces around the, 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 the region. Yeah. Yeah, I guess we have to get into it. I mean, <laughs> yeah, we're going from the micro to the macro. Yeah, from the small <laughs> to the big. There's no way to avoid it. I don't Absolutely know. not. Absolutely <laughs> not. Because we never know. I don't know if it's a fatalistic Lebanese way of you know living by the day because you never know what tomorrow is going to bring to you. Yeah. Everybody says that. Yes. Uh, old and young people I say know, you know. never know what's going to happen tomorrow. Absolutely. I mean, you could say this in a lot of countries, but this one says it first and faster. Uh, yeah, but it's, in a way, it's kind of true. Like, we do not have, uh, how do you say, abri, uh, bombing, shelter? a shelter, exactly. Like, when you don't have shelters and houses and, uh, and buildings, you're living, in a way, uh, a bit dangerously, if, in, a, in a fatalistic way, because you know that there is no plan B. Yeah. There's only a plan A, and you're living by this plan A. And unfortunately, after the war, you might have thought that in the reconstruction effort, people would think about building these shelters but no, there's no shelter whatsoever and we're thinking about 1996, we're talking about uh, 2006 and all, all the various invasions and bombings of Lebanon and uh, still the Lebanese do not learn the lesson of you know, preparing themselves for something 
which is which is also a, a sad constat in a way. You're saying it would be better if they did prepare for such things. We, yeah, economically having having a vision. I think this is what makes Lebanon a, a failed state in a way because we do not have visions for the future. We live by the day by a, a bunch of uh, entrepreneurs that only think about Lebanon as a service-providing country, mm-hmm. and therefore they, we completely abandon any sort of real sectors of uh, work, which are the industry, uh, which is the agriculture. And, you know, in order to have a country, you have to have some sort of production. Yes. So with this reality of only service-providing, where exactly are we going? For me, it comes logically that if you have an economy that has to work, you have to have a strong industry or agriculture, you know, because if there's a, if there's a crisis, at least you want to, to, to know where you're going to have some, some food uh, lying somewhere. And mm-hmm. I don't know, or a shelter, you know, <laughs> if there's a bombing. So, yeah. Let me take it in a different direction. Uh, like I said, this trip, this is the end of a journey that was framed around the revolution, the uprisings of 2011. There's no revolution whatsoever. Let's not use the word revolution whatsoever. And, but, and I also want to make sure that people aren't misled by the fact that we're in Lebanon. And, uh, because besides the fact that you know, we can argue about revolution and so forth, here in Lebanon in 2011, there was no, no uprising. I mean, what was Lebanon doing at that time? Unfortunately, we are, in a way hostages of communities. So in order to do a revolution, I think Lebanese have to start doing a revolution from within their own communities. And we're still being uh, ruled by the same warlords, the same families that have been uh, ruling the country for the past 150 years. People aren't bolder nowadays to stand up, maybe inspired? No, because they have the same fears and we still not show the same fears of, you know, for example, for a Christian, it would be the complete... uh, uh, disappearance from the Middle East, so they have to protect them, the, the, their political uh, presence, if you want, in this uh, in this uh, complex region. And for Muslims, uh, for Sunnis, uh, they're fighting in order not to have the Iran, the, the Shia crescent supposedly growing. And for the Iranians, uh, for the, the sorry, for the Shias. Uh, they they're, they're they're trying to protect their uh, social rights because during the, before the, the the civil war the Shias were the community that was the uh, disenfranchised that had no rights whatsoever and they were not recognized by the communal pact and what uh, and that so there's always this fight within the communities hmm. so if we can deal with that first do a revolution from within but again the word revolution has been so overused that it has lost all its meaning. And even in the Arabic world, when you look at the, the revolutions, we do not use the word revolution. Um, uh, word? I don't know, like uh, some sort of rebellion, uh, but not no, no vision whatsoever for a better future. It's like... Uh, and I don't know who really takes care of a revolution. Is it the middle class? Is it the, 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 the bourgeoisie? Is it... Uh, I don't know if I have to take a class struggle vision on the revolution, but it's true. Maybe it is. Maybe we need to have a more serious look at uh, what makes a revolution. 
thinking about those class divisions in Beirut, walking around in this part of the town, which is a nice part of town, you get the impression that uh, people are okay. But I know that there is another side to Lebanon. There's an economical crisis, so obviously nobody's okay. But at the same time, whenever there's some, some sort of a political uh, stability atmosphere roaming around, we tend to vent about our system and, and the successful system we have. Mm-hmm. Not not vent, how do you say, what's the word to use, uh, br- brag. Oh, yeah. We tend to brag about our successful uh, system. And uh, when tensions arise, we fall back into the community uh, failures and community system failure. Uh, sectarian, more like. There's a topic I want to propose to you just to talk a little bit about that I know that people listening are wondering about because of our proximity, because of the, the intertwined stories, and that is Syria. Right. Uh, a civil war going on there now. We're not that far away. Not that far away. Distance-wise. I don't... I, I, I sort of want to learn without assuming anything. Uh, it, it feels here kind of pleasant <laughs> um, but but this whole shadow of Syria is, is quite Present. looming yeah yeah it's quite looming and we try to distance ourselves the actual government is trying to distance itself from the Syrian crisis but at the same time you have internal forces within the country who are participating in feeding the conflict in Syria like yesterday for example in two Sunni cities you had in Saida and in Tripoli rallies, political rallies one held by a Salafi sheikh called Al-Asir who was uh, uh, directly uh, associating uh, and uh, attacking Hezbollah and, uh, and uh, accusing its chief of being responsible for the killing of Rafil Hariri and you had also in uh, Tripoli the 14th of March movement commemorating the 40th uh, anniversary of the death of Hussam uh, al-Hassan. And uh, both rallies were used to support the, the Syrian revolution or Syrian upheaval. Mm-hmm. And uh, at the same time, the other side is being calm and not showing its teeth yet. So it's, we're feeling Syria here. Unfortunately, and we're and we're receiving loads and loads of refugees, and this is going to add up to the whole uh, crisis. Like, how are we going to deal with all the refugee uh, problem, especially now that winter is coming, and uh, in which situations are they going to be in? And, and so, you know, economically, it's going to be hard. Mm-hmm. But again, this is part of the ironic situation in Lebanon. You can, you, you, there's an impression of, you know, lightness mm-hmm. where, you know, people still go out to have, uh, can have a great time. You see foreigners coming and everything. At the same time, we know that we're on a brazier, on, you know, something that might explode from one day to another. People live in the moment. We were walking along the Corniche yesterday and along the water everybody is out and i mean i wouldn't bl- i don't blame them for being out it's a nice day it's the, the children are playing um but the strange part is to to learn that tomorrow they could be hiding you know yeah. or, or, or figuring out a way to get out of here true 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 
I have nothing to add to that point. I was just checking. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. It's, uh... So, Kamal, how do you approach day to day? I mean, you, do you have a bigger project besides living day to day? Of course. Uh, Improving my uh, drawing skills and uh, and uh, trying to figure out uh, what <laughs> I'm going to be doing later on. Yeah. Yeah, because what, what would you want? What would I want? Oh, what do you want? What do I want? I don't know. What do I, obviously, I want a, I want a real state uh, emerging. Uh, that's me, my biggest concern. Real uh, welfare system. Uh, mm. That's an unpopular term. For, Absolutely. For yeah. yeah, yeah. Especially today, uh, post-liberal uh, Friedman economies. Uh, we definitely need to reassess how to think it. And nobody's, nobody's coming with a counter-alternative, uh, you know, an alternative for economy, yeah. for the economy. A lot of the slogans, and of course we, we got to rehear them and reread them in, in Tahrir Square, and, and even back in Tunisia, people telling us about the slogans during the uprisings. And there was a dignity, and there was liberty, and there was always bread. And I kept coming back to this question, sometimes I would ask it and sometimes I would just keep it inside, which was, I don't see, or I'm not sure, did anyone propose an alternative for how to get bread? Um, and I don't blame them necessarily for not having an alternative because that's extremely difficult. You want to you wanna give me a new economic plan? I, I look around Lebanon, I, 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 don't, I also don't see anyone or anything that shows me there's an alternative to the the world economic, you know, corporate chains are everywhere here. Um, it's it's the same system. I mean, right? I, but it, Lebanon is also such a small country, and uh, it's a small country, and so its place in the world economy is definitely uh, minimal. Uh, we're never never going to have much of a big say but it's true that we could invest more in our brains and invest into some sort of uh, industry de pointe you know like uh, the could be good at something <laughs> no, 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 yeah, yeah and this good in something could be technology like invest in uh, and build universities just to be better in technology and at least uh, this is a, one way of you know being ready for the future everything is going towards that field so at least let's be a pioneers in that and uh because we don't have ma ma major resources. It's not like we have, we're, we're a rentier economy where we have oil mm. or we have gas. Apparently, we, we found some gas in, in, the, the, sea. in the sea. But uh, Everybody's finding gas in the sea. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but by the time we, we try to uh, deal with the, the gas in the sea, I think our, our generation is going to be long gone. Give us the, the, the basics, um, you know, if, if Kamal, you don't have children, do you? No, I'm, no. I'm still young. Say you did, uh, or even for yourself. Um, I'm thinking about school. I'm thinking about health. Uh, first of all, health-wise, for you as an individual. Health-wise. Health-wise. No health health care in Lebanon. No, well, no no public health care in no Lebanon. No public health care. So how does it work? Uh, you have to have everything is privatized, so you have to have. Uh, Minimum sum of a million Lebanese lira in order to be uh, taken care of in case something happens to you. So, and knowing that the majority of Lebanese have are under the belt of misery, it's 
it's a, it's a recipe for disaster again and again. Mm-hmm. And if you if you had children and they wanted to, you wanted to put them in school, what are your options? Uh, well, there's a few. No, school-wise, we do have good private schools. But uh, again, if I'm talking about myself, I'm one of the lucky few. But uh, the, the same time, you can't live in an island, uh, isolated, and uh, you have to look at what surrounds you and. With all this uh, misery, misery being built and uh, built and built and built, it's a bit hard to project yourself in the future. So failed state, fear of the future, uh, misery growing, and people that are stupidly optimistic about this word called revolution, as if it was going to bring any sort of change whatsoever. Even here, people are stupidly optimistic? Well... I mean, I know the visitors are. No, but... no, but I'm thinking about the people, for example, who... Who, who go to the downtown of Beirut, for example, which is this uh, postal card. Uh, Bit of a ghost town. <laughs> it's very ghostly, but at the same time, it, you have all the biggest brands that are being exhibited there. But this is definitely not a demonstration of the reality. The reality is outside the city. If you go to Saida, for example, or to Sur, or Tripoli, and you see how at, at 9 o'clock, the whole city is... Uh, almost black mm -hmm. well, obviously you do have uh, because we don't have electricity for example this is one of the main problems in this country so you have the rule of the mafias and the mafias offering uh, the, the generator for electricity so there's uh, so much potential for storytelling regarding these little stories denouncing these little stories and how we're being ruled by uh, these local uh, mafiosis who control your electricity who control everything basically and it's not like we have a public uh, sector that's uh, working which is the main priority I think in order to have a stable country reinforce the public sector what do we have in the public sector I mean there's an antenna over here I think it's a radio station and I hear that it's state or or Well, the, public. Yeah, the public TV station, unfortunately, uh, is not one of the best mm -hmm. TV stations, that we're going to say. If not a failed one also. So we should definitely encourage maybe private capitals to invest in some sort of joint ventures, 49, 51. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do something about it, but any, any sort of symbol that protects the state, protects the image of a strong state is, is a necessity, especially in a country that has gone through a civil war. We have to remember that. And unfortunately, we, after the civil war, we went through this sort of uh, memory uh, uh, amnesia where we decided to turn the page, uh, pardon all the war, warlords, and go on and we should address the issue of the memory of the war we should deal with it smartly uh, work on the national reconciliation and obviously uh, have a stronger army reimpose uh, military service in order to have all these Lebanese be aware of the public uh, space they live in and, uh, and respect it I think. and I think unfortunately the army is I think this is going to sound a bit shocking for somebody who might sound a bit liberal, but uh, 
this age of revolutions where we tend to be liberal and just adopt the Western way. I think in our countries it's a bit different. We need to, to have some sort of fascist phase maybe to construct, build. We need to build. Mm-hmm. We need to build. We need like a ecological, cultural, f- I'm missing some words, fascism. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But if we, if we fall into that, we're going to fall into the whole post 9-11. You know, you, know you, need, you need this trauma in order to awake the people. Unfortunately, we went through the trauma. We didn't react after the trauma. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know which syndrome is it. Is it like the Stockholm syndrome? Like, are we in love with our butchers? Um, yeah, we're amazed with, for example, the the, the non-smoking uh, law that was just passed. Wow! And yeah, yeah. Indoors. So, yeah, indoors. So apparently, and I remember the titles. The title, one of the titles of Florian Le Jour that was uh, saying that finally we're part of the civilized world. You know, because we've uh, addressed this question of banning smokes, smoking uh, indoors. You can be killed tomorrow, but you can't smoke indoors. It's like we love the facade. It's a country of facades. Playing on that is quite beautiful. I love it. Love so, it. but so all these dem- you, you you just made a pretty good, I think, list of what the country may need in order to uh, survive and live better, people to, to live better than they do now. Um, does that stuff come into your work? It's coming. It's coming along. It takes a bit of time, but. Uh, how, how do you balance the whole, you know, make money yet do what you love thing in not, this country? <laughs> not quite well yet, but it's coming. It's it's growing. It's growing. I have my blog and I have my character who's emerging little by little. And uh, soon, I think soon enough, it's going to be there. It's, let's not call it work in progress. Let's call it... Uh, Slow, Mediterranean slow. Yes. <laughs> Not spl- spleen also. There's some sort of a spleen in it. Yes. Yeah. So and in the meantime, you you do the work you need to do to to pay bills. But yeah, yeah, obviously. Mm-hmm. Working for a newspaper right now and working uh, also in kids' books, illustrating kids' books. But uh, it's a bit slow. Let's put it that way. Kamal, no, 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 Kamal. It's, it, first of all, we, we gotta go. Uh, that's the whole nature of our visit to Lebanon. Um, you live day to day, and we live in a very short time span. But I'm really glad that we could sit and, and you could give us a lay of the land. I, I don't know if you agree, but I'll say that I learned a lot. And the goal here is also that people listening who may or may not know about Lebanon could, could learn something and, and get an idea of the country. Um, so thanks for that. And I want to also mention your, your blog. Go, go ahead, because I don't know it. Oh, uh, Kamatopia. Okay. With a K. And um, I'll, I'll put the link in the show notes. Okay, sweet. Thanks. And people will be able to see your work. And, and we'll revisit you. We'll do it proper yes, uh, in the coming year. Yes, we should. Okay. <laughs> Kamal Hakim, thanks so much, man. Thank you. Just some final thoughts on today's program. Listening back to Kamal in that park, it's the kind of interview that over the last almost 10 years, I've done in so many different countries with so many different people, and each time I just feel like I'm sitting with an old friend, and I I wonder if that comes across to you. I hope it does. Also funny is Kamal himself has a beard, wears a corduroy blazer, as I sometimes do, 
I felt kind of like I was sitting with a, a buddy of mine or a brother of some kind, which made the interview all the more pleasant. That's it for this week, but of course the website is citizenreporter.org. And on RadioOpenSource.org, you can find many programs that I've been producing along with Christopher Lydon. Plenty of content. I think we're up around 15 episodes, approaching 20, from the North Africa and Middle East journey. And I'm so glad to be able to share them with you. And thanks to everyone who helped us get there. And thanks to everyone who is listening now. I'll catch you next week. Happy New Year. See you soon. See ya.